Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 128 of the Apple Log Podcast. I am your host, Simon Head. Before we get started, I want to let you know that I am doing a Ride to Conquer Cancer. It's a 200-kilometer bike ride over two days in June, and I would love you to sponsor me in that ride. You can go to applelog.ca and click on the Ride to Conquer Cancer banner up at the top right. Please tell a friend, we have to conquer cancer. I'm really excited to go do this bike ride, and I haven't even started training yet. This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash to get your free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, and or Kindle player. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash and have a book, a free book. If you'd like to get rent to this, that's the thing to do. Please, if you're interested in supporting the show, go to applelot.ca slash Amazon. That's my Amazon affiliate program. If you're from Canada, do that. If you're from the United States or the UK, you can go to applelot.ca and click on the country banner on the right side, uh, whether you're from the United States or the UK. You can bookmark those link banners, and every time you shop on Amazon, use the links to shop and support the show. It costs no extra money. If you're interested in supporting the show on a monthly basis, you can go to patreon.com slash You can pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees. Cancel at any time, and you'd really be supporting the show. I'm starting this little pilot project store on my Insight Recorders website. It's for 3D printing. So if you go to insightrecorders.com slash 3D prints, that's number three, letter D, prints. Check out this new little store that I've started up. It's just, I'm just testing the water, see if people are actually interested in purchasing 3D printed items. There's all sorts of stuff there. One of the coolest things is if you send me a picture, I can 3D print it into a, a 3D printed picture. So when you hold the picture up to the light, the lithophanes, you will see your picture. And it's it's kind of a cool thing. It's like magic. And I like it. It's a fun thing to do. And I just bought a brand new 3D printer, so I need to pay for it. Insight Recorder is also a place to get your record mixed online. Well, not online. You send it here, and then it gets mixed. You can send your recorded album to Insight Recorders, and it will be mixed and mastered to add a professional touch to your recording. There's many, many other services available. Like, you can start your own web store. You can... You can sell your music there. Go to insightrecorders.com slash rates and insightrecorders.com slash contact for more details. Go to applelog.ca slash shop to pre-order an acoustic album. I know I've been posting this thing for almost a year, but it's actually coming out. I'm, I'm really working on it now. You can buy a t-shirt uh, there and buy my band's Foursquare discography for $20. If you are on iTunes... Please subscribe, rate, and view the show on iTunes. Give it some stars. Like the show on Facebook by going to uh, facebook.com slash Pod. Follow me on Twitter at SimonHead666. Whew. Today on the show, I have my old friend, one of my oldest friends, Eric Weller. Eric Weller started a record label in Thunder Bay, Ontario in sort of the late 80s, early 90s to help the band that he liked called Head Cramp. He also managed another band called The Dinks, and he would also be my contact. When I used to take my, I don't know if whoever's listening to the show know that, I used to actually travel around Canada with my recording studio. 
And Eric was one of my contacts. He was the Thunder Bay contact. I would call him up and I would say, hey, Eric, I'm coming to town. And he'd find me like five bands to record. It was just wonderful times back then because I didn't actually have an apartment or anything. I just went and toured around Canada and, and recorded bands. And he was very helpful in that process. He's a swell guy. He's, he now he teaches at a university. And he's he's just a cool guy. He got all grown up, and his name's Eric Weller, and he's my friend. I want you all to meet him now on the Apple Lock Podcast. We met 1991. Yeah, I remember actually the exact day. Oh, you do? Oh, okay. It was in, uh, it was either uh, Calgary or, Ed- or Edmonton. And there was a show that this guy, I think his name was Rusty Gregg. Yeah. I shouldn't say names, eh? Yeah, no, it's Rusty. It was Rusty, yeah. Yeah, he put on a show, but it was all, it was all kind of screwed up. And there was like a freak show. Uh, and it was Red Fisher. You were Red Fisher, and we met in the stairway. And you were like, "Hey, we're Red Fisher. Who are you guys?" And yeah, like over oh, right, Graham. And then, um, yeah, and then uh, I think we saw you guys play, and then and then Head Cramp played, and nobody got paid because of all the freaks in the freak show. Wanted <laughs> lots of money. They were eating light bulbs. One guy ate a light bulb. I don't remember that at all. But was it in uh, was it McEwen Hall or somewhere like that? And in, in the Cal- was it in uh, in a university? Yeah, it was at a university. Oh, so it would have been McEwen Hall then, I think. And uh, I think we were on tour with a with a band from Winnipeg at that point too, um, Anthony Mackey's band, whatever they were called at that point. And then, so because uh, I was trying to put together how we corresponded, because we okay, that's when we first met when you were you were you were on tour with Head Cramp. But how do we figure out this? meeting because we you guys came at the winnipeg and like so the timeline is funky for me i'm trying to remember how that all happened yeah i don't know i mean you're kind of asking the wrong guy i mean so much of that uh, that time was uh, a bit of a blur to me Mm -hmm. there's so much happening i was a lot older than the other guys remember yeah um but uh uh yeah we had gone to winnipeg and we had we're going through uh, to brandon manitoba i know the first show head cramp played in winnipeg was at now i can't even remember the one dive downtown oh uh, westward westward Inn. was it the westward Inn? not the westward um oh god uh the royal albert the royal albert that's right so yeah. it was at the royal albert and a band um there was a band called pontius pilot yep and they opened and uh the band you know they were all 17 18 at the time uh, head cramp was all 1789. It was our first, first show in Winnipeg. Um, and that would have been 1990, but we met after that, by that point, head cramp had been doing stuff and was touring around, but I don't really remember after that first, after that first meeting, I know we saw each other again, uh, at a different show. Um, and you had this enormous, or you wrote, you had this enormous bag of popcorn. It was a transparent garbage sized, bag of popcorn that you had taken with you and you'd been eating over the course of a month and you'd gotten about halfway through it. Yeah. 
Um, so we thought that was pretty pretty interesting. That was that for sure. I think that might have been Edmonton. I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah, but I don't know about after that. Yeah, because I mean, being a band from like working because you you like when you first met Headcramp, you ultimately became their manager, and then you. I mean, you did so much for them. It's crazy how much, like, out of Thunder Bay, uh, started a record label, um, managed a band. Like, you've done more stuff for one band than a lot of people can can boast. I mean, like, how did you get started with Headcramp? Well, I was uh, living with a guy uh, named Doug, uh, and he was in Headcramp. And uh, I had, uh, was, I think, my primary... A motivation to get involved with all this is I really liked recording and and this would be back of course in the cassette four track days and in, in my case I couldn't even afford a four track machine so I was actually bringing uh, used VCRs and trying to time them to start at the same time to get multi-track stuff happening so I was just interested in and I had a little Radio Shack mixer and I was just interested so I I had recorded a, a local band in my girlfriend's basement. It was called they were called Pukefish, and we ended up selling like a lot of, of these cassettes back then. That was back when cassettes were big. CDs weren't really even well; they were around, but like certainly nobody was manufacturing them back then. And anyway, Doug was in Head Cramp, and he invited me to one of their shows. And uh, one of the guys in 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 head cramp had been in a band called the sludge pigs, which I would thought were the funniest band ever. And then, yeah, I saw the head cramp show and, and all of the songs were about surfing and throwing up and eating donuts and, and all of this stuff. They had modeled themselves after the day glow abortions, I think. Mm-hmm. And they had this sort of metally sound, uh, which was different from everybody else at the time. Everybody else was either, you were either heavy metal. There was lots of metal bands at Thunder Bay back then, or you were uh, punk rock um and punk rock like sort of conflict and crass and that kind of stuff like really british style sort of yeah. punk rock or you know the the california american version and they were this weird hybrid that that uh i guess would later be called hardcore or had come from this you know the the earlier hardcore roots yeah like crossover stuff yeah from the, from the 80s you know like when dri crossed over and that kind of thing yeah. but it was all funny all the songs were light and funny and they actually had melodies and stuff and so I, I hit it off with those guys, and I just said, well, I want to record you. And so that started happening. I actually didn't record their first cassette, uh, a guy named Will did, and I thought it sounded amazing. Uh, and one of the reasons it sounded amazing was uh, um, they had stolen this this beautiful uh, tube type, I didn't know what brand it was, but it was this enormously heavy mixing console that they had stolen from some other guy. All of their stuff was stolen. Everything was stolen in Thunder Bay back then. Um, and it had this crazy sound and they had two guitars and they were amazing. And I just, okay, I got to get it. I did. And I just sort of forced my way in. I knew nothing about music or musicianship or instruments or even recording. Really. I was just uh pedestrian, you know, but mm-hmm. I was just really, really interested in, in, uh, you know, you're a young man in your 20s, you sort of latch on to things. And, and yeah. I, and, I and, and they were quite passive. They were all, they were like, okay, sure, let's do this. Yeah. And I remember sitting them down. It's like, let's set some goals. Let's be the, the first band in Thunder Bay to have a music video on Match Music. Let's be the first band in Thunder Bay to put out a real CD. Let's be the first band in Thunder Bay to tour. You know, and they were all, you know, uh, funny guys, but, you know, 
they weren't particularly talented or bright or motivated <laughs> or anything. And after a couple of years, we actually achieved all those things. We were the first band to get a video on Much Music and a tour and have a CD and and uh, yeah, blazed the trail for Liverpool North for sure for for a long time. And it was fun. It was so much fun. Yeah, I think back to those those days and. And you know, uh, we weren't officially straight edge by any by any measure, but none of us drank and none of us smoked and none of us did any kind of drugs. And so, to amuse ourselves, we would just do funny things, and we, and we would we would you know we were always sort of awake and aware, and and uh, and uh, yeah, it was just it was just a lot of fun. And and Head Grant would get very very positive reactions uh, when we played. Shows you know, recall back. I don't know how it works now, but uh, back then, you know, it'd be seven, eight, nine, ten bends on a on a bill at some boys and girls club somewhere. Uh, you know, when you're playing the uh, the punk rock circuit, our our Bible, as it were, was the the Maximum Rock and Roll book, your own fucking life. If yeah. you remember those, yeah, we've mentioned that a few times on this show. Yeah, yeah. And so we would just look at the listings and we'd call up the guy, hey, we we want to come through Winnipeg. Do you can you get get us a show and, and the guy would say sure and he'd either put a show on in, in the basement yep. or if if he knew someone at a club um we could we could do something like that and we just travel around like that i mean gas was so cheap back then it was basically free we almost didn't even enter it into the the ledger of of expenses yeah you could sell a few t-shirts at a show and then drive all the way to to calgary on that i mean we didn't have any money yeah at all none of us had any money so yeah no you you were always like so entrepreneurial though like that was something was that always something that you've always done just not just with music but other things like before then like were you the kid on the on the on the street corner with the lemonade stand like what what sparked this entrepreneurialship because you that's kind of what you did in in a way yeah absolutely like uh, i don't know if it stems from you know the whole wanting to be your own boss or it's some kind of mechanism through which you feel independent or or something to that degree but yeah um my dad had a giant stack of used duotangs and i remember taking them and then going door to door in my neighborhood knocking on the door and asking if the neighbors wanted to buy any of these old duotangs and they're like are you with the boy scouts and i'm like no (laughs) and then they they would give me money and then uh and it was like hey do you have any leftover pop bottles and they thought I was some kind of collection thing and I brought a friend along and we'd collect beer bottles and pop bottles and take them to the uh the store for the refund there and buy candy or whatever hockey cards or something yeah uh so yeah there was always that I was always trying to to come up with new and interesting ways and yeah you know it was it's never it's funny the entrepreneurial spirit as it were is 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 rarely about the money it's it's yeah. obviously about um, um, independence and that kind of thing, and I, that, I think that's why it's such a allure to people who 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 can get who can get taken by you know multi level marketing schemes and stuff like that. That desire to be independent, to be your own person, to blaze the trail or what have you. But I just really loved music and really loved punk rock at the time. And, and, and back then it was course, and again, you know, being being almost fifty and everything, uh, I don't know how it works now, but back then. As with maybe every generation, it just seemed very new and very exciting, just as the whole, you know, in an, everyone thinks of the early 90s as being grunge, but clearly there was so much more going on uh, in in music at the time. It was, there's so many different types of bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and under the banner of punk rock, I mean, you could have, you know, you could have the Dead Kennedys and you could have 
X and you could have crass and you could have, um, you know, the new pop punk stuff that was coming out. So under the one banner, you'd have all these different styles. So it was very exciting. It was very exciting. And so I wanted to, to, to marry the two together, the entrepreneurial stuff that I was uh, looking for direction with and uh, the music that I was enjoying. And it's like, okay, I know I can't play an instrument. I just can't do that. So what's the next best thing? I'm going to saddle up to these guys here <laughs> and hang out with them, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, and ride their coattails. And, and Thunder Bay in a whole pre-internet, pre-everything was kind of like isolated. So you could be a big fish in a little in a little pond. And there was like sort of like words traveled that, you know, oh, this band's are breaking out of town. This is a good thing for, you know what I mean? That town spirit, you know? And, and, and I remember the early days of coming there that there was a lot of town spirit with the independent music scene. And you were primarily responsible for it. I mean, let's let's call that fact a fact there, that there was a lot of people, like there was Frank at Crocs and Rolls. He was very supportive to all bands that were touring through. But you seem to be like the one that supported towards the like early to mid-90s. It was your scene that you created. And uh, I mean, I have to give you credit for that, for sure. And I don't know who wouldn't give you credit for that, but that's, that's an important Yeah, maybe. Role. I mean, I, I'm not so sure I agree with that. I don't, I, don't, I don't remember it being like that. I don't remember being, certainly no one, you know, ever, you know, and this, the nature of, of lots of business, no one ever slaps you on the back and says, good job. And I never, uh, you know, really thought of it that way. Uh, a couple of people came to me and said they were very upset that the Thunder Bay Museum has a section on popular music and it mentions all these bands, but there's nothing there about Meathead Records or Head Cramp or, yeah. or all of these things when we were, we at one point were, you know, uh, even across Canada, you know, we, we sort of just before the whole, uh, Nirvana Green Day explosion of everything. You know, there was FNFU and there was Armed and Hammered and there's yeah. a few other bands. And Head Cramp wasn't quite at that level, but we were sort of up and coming in there. There weren't that many bands doing that kind of thing at the time. It was still very much uh, underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the scene in Thunder Bay was uh, was quite vibrant. Lots of people doing things. But really, the focal point of the scene in Thunder Bay was Crocs and Rolls and was was. Mm-hmm. was for sure so frank was the club. granddaddy though he, frank yeah, was, he a- was the club he he was the, the place yeah. where everyone played yeah um and i started putting on shows at uh, uh the rec center just because uh it was getting harder for him to to have all ages things you know he's got a business to run and that kind of stuff uh and so we started having shows at the halls and then the, the kids really started coming because they didn't have to go to a bar and then that really built it up uh, and then all kinds of bands started forming and coming out of the work woodwork at that point. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, good times for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, you're pretty humble with it, but I mean, there's not a lot of scenes because I've been all across this wonderful country and there's a very few pockets of towns where actually it's sort of like you can tell where it started or at least where it was the inner workings of it. I mean, if Frank was the granddaddy, you'd be the crazy uncle of <laughs> Thunder, <laughs> Thunder Bay sure. punk rock, you know. And you know, take take that because that is it's in, as a, as an outsider coming into Thunder Bay in the early '90s, there was only two people that really we focused on when it came to the music, our music, <laughs> you know. And I don't know what the cover band scene or any of that shit was happening, but it was. It was there, like, but it wasn't. Didn't seem as prevalent as the other towns. Because when I started touring, the sort of the the cover band circuit was sort of coming to a bitter end. 
and mm-hmm. and bands would travel you know rock bands could travel around playing other people's music but i think the nail in the coffin was that there was younger dudes like us that could sort of put something together and and make things happen and you know and the other thing i have to give you credit for is that i would record bands after bands after bands after bands in thunder bay and it was all based on your good word and you know that's you know it's pretty it's pretty cool stuff you know like when you travel through my recording studio and things like that you always give me a place to stay uh sure. you know what i mean well, like, you were exploiting you were exploiting a very uh a very um definitive gap in thunder bay which was um bands wanted to sound good and as soon as cds were getting you know kind of inexpensive to manufacture uh never mind cassettes um bands wanted to sound good and there were a couple recording studios in thunder bay but you know they mostly did like you know the finnish orchestra or something like that (laughs) or people doing you know their their own little country music things they didn't really know how to deal with this kind of music Uh, and they were incredibly expensive so you know uh i you had done some recordings for, for for us. We had actually did the the one in in, in Winnipeg, yep. Bedside Studios. That's right. For the the Head Cramp CD, Mind Blowing, a Beef Fest Spectacular. Yeah, and, not uh, just a catchy name. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so there was this demand, and so I, you know, when you first started coming through, and people could hear the quality of that recording. Yeah, they would. Not only would they line up to to get a really good sounding recording from you coming through. Um, you know, I'd get calls, uh, when Simon coming through kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, um, and I said, well, I don't know, maybe a few months you're going to have to, you're going to have to wait, uh, because people wanted that quality. So there were things, there were gaps, eh? there were things missing and if you yeah. could fill them in, but again, that just shows that the, uh, uh, there was a bit of a vibrant scene. We did have quite a specific goal though, that I have to say it never, it never got realized. I think my goal was always to try to put or help find some band or artist that could uh, take it to the next level, get onto a big record label and, and blow up the scene, like what happened in Halifax or, yeah. you know, some other place like that, you know, cause once it's, you know, whatever, you know, with, with sub pop and everything and in Seattle, but uh, could that happen? Could Thunder Bay, I always push Thunder Bay as being sort of Liverpool North. There's kids who haven't got anything else to do. There's lots of bands and lots of activity happening. We need to get a record label guy in here and sign one band and get them hot. And then all the other ones will come along. And and so I always had a goal to try and help facilitate that in, in some way. And, and yeah, it was, uh, um, I will take credit for spending my own money and my own time to help bands um, for whom I didn't know any of the guys. I just thought they were a good band. It's like, okay, what can I, what can I do to help? Yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate because you know you you, you can it, it wasn't all uh, you know people can get jealous and and uh, you know why are you helping these guys but you're not helping us we're better than them and and the next thing you know your name's getting dragged through the dirt it's like well geez here I am going broke <laughs> yeah. uh, spending all my time trying to help people I don't even know yeah with all the comps the greater good and then yeah. you know you shit all over so yeah it, it ultimately left a bad taste in my mouth and. Certainly when I moved from Head Cramp to a couple other bands and I was working with a band called The Dinks, um, uh, who, uh, you know, I just had such a bad time with those guys because they had such a totally different vibe. Uh, I had such a bad time and you made um, 
one of the best recordings I've ever heard of a, of a punk rock band with <laughs> those guys. Wow. Thank so you. you had paid me back all the, all the capital I had uh, gained by, by helping you get all those recordings, all those bands. I cashed it all in with the dinks and you gave these guys an amazing recording. And I always regretted that. I should have picked a different band to cash all that in on because those guys were dinks. <laughs> well, it was very unpleasant. I'd imagine like they're, I it's mean, still an amazing CD and I still listen to it. I mean, it's such a, yeah. a phenomenal sound you got. Yeah. Thanks. I remember playing it. We were, we were playing it in a living room and I think it was the girls from cub. If you remember them were, oh, yeah. from, were from BC. They were, they were actually staying at our place because we had the place where everyone crashed and really coming through. And they were like, is this you guys? Oh my God. It sounds so big and full. Who did this and everything. And they were just praising it. And I was like, oh. well, yeah, this was Simon Head. He's the guy. Got to go see him in Toronto. <laughs> the um, well, the thing about the Dinks was, is I think Johnny Nastor was on the show like uh, last yeah, year. Johnny. Yeah, Johnny. Johnny got no problem with Johnny. Yeah, he explained some things about it, and I can't remember the the context he put it in. Obviously, very diplomatic, but he kind of said that everybody was on a different trajectory, and they kind of just sort of lost interest, you know. Mm-hmm. The band, it, like the Dinks, they were sort of pre. I mean, were they around the Screeching Weasel days when, when Screeching Weasel were kind of like around, or like what was their? Yeah, well, they would have been after that. They were. They went from being let's sound exactly like the Ramones, yeah, to sort of being okay. Let's just be a straight up, straight up rock band. Yeah, and I still liked all of their their music. It was just there's a couple of guys in the band who were brothers who just you know, for lack of a better word, they're just spoiled little brats. They're just yeah. spoiled guys. Yeah. They were used to getting everything, and and they weren't they weren't funny or nice or <laughs> you know, and it was just different. I, was yeah. used to, I used to go on the road with head cramp, and we would just laugh, you know. And it's a long drive between Winnipeg and Edmonton, yeah. but when you're with you know people you're essentially brothers with, and it's just in your in your twenties, and you just you know for for six hours, you're just telling jokes and laughing and. Uh, and it's awesome. And it goes from that to to people complaining that it's cold or, you know, or complaining that this and that. And it's just, oh, yeah, it can, it can be awful. It can be so magical when it's good, but it can be so awful uh, when you're dealing with uh, uh, egos and attitudes and that kind of thing. And obviously the music business is, is, is dense with that sort of stuff for sure. Yeah, I remember you explaining sort of towards the end of the head or sorry of the Meathead Records days. And of sort of like, because you were putting out all these great comps with like a hundred bands and stuff, like big, long, multi-disced, um, you know, comp records, you know, not just Thunder Bay bands, but bands all over Canada. And I think your idea was to sort of let's let's branch it and then bring it back. Like, let's branch out, bring it all back to Thunder Bay. And But you were spending so much money on releasing and artwork and you know, it, it's, it's, but you have this body of work and, uh, and your brother did some great artwork on that too, by the way, I have to give your brother, brother credit. And I don't know if you've, you have kids. So there's the Mr. Mr. Sad, Mr. All those Mr. Mr. Books where they're like the little balls. I'm right. yeah, Mr. Clever, by the way. You're, I could have sworn, like, I'm like, is that your brother doing that? Because it's almost like the exact same kind of like artwork, but yeah. in color. Yeah, but, he's got a unique style. So yeah, that was the that was the Canadian independent box set. So that was a ten CD box set. Uh, it was actually nine. It was supposed to be ten CDs because one of them was actually going to be hip hop and rap music, 
And some guy in Toronto that I was talking to when I was really out there trying to put this thing together said, let me do that one for you. Let me get all the artists for you. Oh. And then he was going to do that. And then I think in, in hindsight, why it didn't happen was he didn't want it to happen. <laughs> he didn't want anyone else to do it. So he did that thing, uh, you know, where the manager of uh, Alice Cooper signs the, uh, the New York Dolls just to make sure they don't get out there and compete with his main. Yeah main guy was one of those things so it ended up being a nine cd box set that came in a lovely box with all kinds of stickers and i think we sold it for like 20 bucks or something <laughs> we got like nine cds and 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 all of these other great things for like uh, 20 bucks but that did that did crazy for like i sent one to every college radio station in canada yeah that sucker stayed on the college charts for the better part of a year across the country yeah, I never made a nickel off that or anything like that, but it, uh, it's got a little place in Canadian independent music history yeah. uh, for sure. No one had done anything like that yeah. um, before. You know, and uh, I look at Black and Out, I, I see what the problem with it was, is that, like if you like, because I had arranged them all by CD, so if you like, one of the CDs was heavy metal bands, and one of the CDs was sort of alternative, and then straight up rock, and then punk rock, and all these different types of independent music. So the problem was, of course, now you're 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 buying this big box, and you don't like anything on it except for the the music on one CD. Yeah. So other than kind of an archival, um, you know, uh, anthology type perspective on it, really, it wasn't that good of a deal. Although the yeah, the artwork Duncan did a fa- fantastic job on 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 the artwork. I actually recently found a box of uh, about fifty more of those in the basement and I thought for the last 10 years they'd all been gone so maybe I'll throw some on eBay see if anybody remembers them that's amazing well yeah please I did a heavy metal box set as well which was much more successful yeah and I did yeah I did the international punk rock box set which was in fact 10 CDs and that one did that one did really well that one sold well overseas and I think that was when the dollar really took a nosedive yeah so you know I was selling them for uh, like 30 bucks, but that would be pushing 50, $60 or whatever yeah. American. So it was a, uh, it was a bonanza there. Those, th- those ones did quite well, but again, very limited runs, only 500 copies of each. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you advertise on that? Was it through magazines or through the internet at that point? It was, those ones were early internet yeah. and there was a lot of startups, um, like punkrock.com and, and places like that. Uh, you know, would would take them on consignment, and uh, I remember just doing a lot of you know the early early days of the internet were very interesting, the dial up and everything. But it was a lot of getting lists of email addresses of people that might be interested. I remember going on that you could do this back then. Uh, you could go on to eBay. You could go to the section where people are buying punk rock records, and if and back then it was news. So like fifteen people would be like trying to buy uh you know an operation ivy lp but ebay would actually list all of their email addresses so you could actually go into ebay and you could collect the email addresses wow. of hundreds and hundreds of people who are buying the exact music that you're selling and then i would just spam them <laughs> but it wasn't really spam i would email them one at a time and say hey i've got this you know international punk rock box set for for 20 bucks plus paid you know, and send them a little a little thing or whatever, and I would just email all these these, you know, these people that I knew were were into that kind of music because I because I would do the sort of the direct marketing work 
uh, that way. It was very laborious. But I had quit my job at that point. I was working at Swiss Chalet as a waiter. I'd worked there for 12 years while I was going to university and doing the record label. Mm-hmm. But I quit. I didn't have a job. So I was I was literally living off of eBay and these 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 anthologies that I was I was I was putting out. Incredible. But I mean, <clears throat> you found like you said, you you found out a way to to make a market for yourself. Like that's the entrepreneurial way. Like I see, I came to the internet late. Like I was around 2003 or four is when I actually started actually using the internet. Um, and this is, I remember like 1997, I came through with Mark Spikolak, who is like was like the head of A and R at Universal Records. Like he he came through as an assistant uh, from a traveling studio, and he said, uh, "Hey." The first time I ever heard it was in your your house saying, "Hey, can I check my email?" I'm like, "What the fuck is email? Like, what is yeah. that? Like, what's happening?" And this is 1997, so like I came late to the party on that stuff. I remember you had a roommate too who who collected fish recordings. What's it? Yeah, Who's yeah, that guy? I, I can't remember his name. He was a he was like a spaced out tall university guy. <laughs> he he had he, again pre internet when they would mail all cassettes. These- Cassettes. They would mail each other cassettes, and then they would uh, listen to them and everything. And, and he um, would get these really poor quality cassettes sometimes. And I had a, um, a DAT machine and a 32 band EQ. And I remember, oh, let me fix this up for you. And so I threw it into the you know all the tape hiss I could take out, and I could really punch it all up and everything. Yeah. He thought that was the greatest thing ever. Uh, and, and that was one of the other reasons I wanted to get more into, uh, into recording and, 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 and mixing and that kind of thing. But yeah, he was a, he was an interesting guy. He would travel to go, he was a fish head. He would go travel and, and follow the band around and, and see all their shows. And he was, he famously came back one time and said that he had seen the greatest fish show ever. And I guess the band had never done it before and has never done it since, but he, he went to a show and they apparently played the entire white album by the Beatles from beginning to end. Wow. And, uh, and it was like the most amazing thing ever. And he was, he was high as a kite having seen that. He, was, he felt so privileged. And we felt privileged just hearing the story from him. <laughs> um, the other memory I had is I rolled into town. Uh, you, you know where I'm going. You might know where I'm going with this, but I rolled into town. It was like late. And I go, hey, I need to go to the store. And you go, oh, the store's down there. And I, I walked to the store and I'm walking back. And these four dudes with these big, these scream masks came up and you were one of the four dudes and I was ready to fight. Like, (laughs) I've told the story on the podcast before, but it it later, I was shitting my pants because I was so afraid. Um, But (laughs) yeah, we thought it would be funny to stage a mugging. It was a pretty rough (laughs) end of town. So you went to, you know, it's late at night. There's a Mike's Mart that's 24 hours just down the street after you left, we, we all dressed in black and threw on the masks and then we hid and we waited for you. It took forever. Like it was getting cold out there. We're waiting, waiting. (laughs) We jumped out from around the corner, all menacing. Like, and I remember you stopping and your eyes went wide and you just stepped back and you're like, Oh, Hey guys, uh, what's going on? And then Lee, Lee Arnone, he just walked up to you and he pushed you (laughs) and you panicked. You're like, "Hey, hey, Hey, calm down. And you started freaking out. And then we couldn't keep it together anymore, so we all started laughing. And we pulled the masks off. I yeah, was and scared. started hyperventilating. You were so happy and so upset at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And I remember we all went back. We all went back to the house, and we're just sitting around and having a good time and talking. And you were outside. I think you were having a smoke, and your hand was all shaking, trying to pull it together. Yeah, I. Good I, time. I. I, see, I don't know why we did that. I'm sorry. I, no, no, it's totally fine. But 
like I kind of knew you guys, but I didn't kind of know you guys. But we had, you know, we had a rapport. But maybe we talk on the phone occasionally. Like, but yeah, it was very. <laughs> I'll never forget it because I I thought, oh, this is it. I'm gonna get my ass kicked and robbed, and this is it. And I think I had every dollar in my pocket, like any all the money I had, like I had in my wallet. So I was like, I was I was shitting bricks because I thought that's it. And the other the other memory I had was it was so cold that my van froze solid in out out in front of your place. And so I got it towed to a gas station and then the gas station charged me hourly shop rate for it to thaw out. So they gave me an $800 like bill. And uh I was <laughs> I was like I have to pay all this money just to for them to install a block heater into my van. So I had to keep it running all night because there was no way to plug it plug it in for like the night because I couldn't get an extension cord out. So I left it idling like all night so I could drive to Saskatoon the next day. That was uh <laughs> that was pretty harrowing. I can't even remember when that was because I came through town so many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember that, but uh, boy, that would have been yeah. That's crooked. I don't think you can you can charge eight hundred dollars to thaw it out. Yeah, they were uh, whoever that was. That's not good. I think I think though they saw me coming, like they saw the Toronto in me coming, and they're like, let's just, let's just get this guy for all every penny. I think Thunder Bay, most notably, like maybe towns like Wawa, were really bad at like ripping people off. Like like for some reason there was like they could sniff the out of townness in you, and uh, <laughs> and come in and come and get you. The other thing about Thunder Bay, I wonder if they're still around, is those crazy signs. The crazy signs with like lightning bolts. And uh, those travel, they put like the portable signs out on the, on the, on the, on the, as you're driving by for your store, but it would have like stars and lightning bolts. And it was always like sort of fluorescent colors and. Right. Yeah. No, I I don't know if they passed a bylaw uh, outlawing those ugly things. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, for a while there, it was every, every, every store along any street would have these God awful uh, black signs with the lettering. And they were really easy to vandalize. So, you know, kids would go down the street and pull off all the letters and then, you know, get enough to make some pretty interesting sentences out of them for the last sign on the end of the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, but, yeah, that, that's, that's since disappeared. But, yeah, that was a uniquely uh, a Thunderbird thing. You know, and they would just throw all these big bricks uh, on the feet of these things to hold them down. They were the ugliest things yeah. you could possibly imagine, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I- the tech changed a lot since then. Uh, yeah. Some some in better ways and others not so much i'm still here which is uh which is has always been surprising to me well yeah you know there was a time i was going to move up there too at one point i think i was i thought about it for a minute because there was this big old house that was for sale and it was this big brick house with a turret and i recorded a band up in the top level and they said oh the house is in receivership and and whenever someone buys it we're gonna have to move out and i'm like how much do they want for it? it's like one hundred eighty-four thousand dollars. It's right downtown. It's like 10 foot high ceilings, this beautiful big old brick house. And I I think that seems cheap to me. I don't, you know, so I was like, well, the house I'm in right now is, 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 is a hundred year old brick house. It's three stories. I have an acre of land. I'm a five minute walk from the college. I'm in the middle of town. It cost me one eighty nine. Crazy. I mean, this would easily be over a million dollars. Oh yeah. More than that. In yeah. Toronto, yeah. So house prices here are super cheap, and you you can stretch your dollar pretty good for sure, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. But you know, 
you got to live here. That's part. That's part of <laughs> so it. So when you le- like you stopped, did you like have a day, the last day of of Meathead Records, or was it was it a, a fizzle out? Like, because I know you got a job, you got the job at the college, sort of like in the later '90s or early 2000s or something. Like, well, I took the program. Man. I took the film production program. Uh, I had I was done with Meathead Records. That was it. I was gonna I was gonna leave town. I was gonna marry my girlfriend at the time and split town i was going to go to uh vancouver with her and then uh she had two more years of university left I said, well what am i going to do for two years so i took the film production program at the college and i and i really liked it and it stuck and then uh broke up with the girl but i was enjoying the uh the program so much uh i was still doing uh meathead records through that but you know the bug for for shooting and being around uh, film production and cameras and all that really, really took off. And I, I sort of married the two of them in a lot of ways. I mean, the Dinks were in my my student film. And, uh, you know, it was more like, a, not a fizzling out, more like a crossing over into into something else. It was like, well, look at all these new toys and all this new gear and all these new opportunities and things I can do uh, with this. So, and, it, you know, with music videos, it was that really interesting, um, you know, blending of the of the two disciplines uh together for sure and then right after i graduated uh dennis austin my who was my uh, my mentor and i ended up working with him he was my teacher back then he said why don't you make a feature film why don't you make a movie so i said well geez how am i going to do that i'll just give you all the film and give you all the the camera coming you take it all to your house so that's when i was living with matt henry in that tiny house so we just moved the whole uh equipment room film equipment and everything to my place and we made a zombie movie and then uh i used a lot of the music from from that i had uh, gotten from working with bands and the record label to to score that and and that's pretty much how it switched over i mean i i, I bought my own um well i was renting a place and had my own studio there was a recording studio in the basement and a uh, uh the top floor was was video ed- editing and everything like that but yeah it was just getting rough working with with bands, things had changed, and I didn't want to do it anymore. And then when they offered me the full-time job at the college, uh, you know, you don't turn that down when you get that. It's it's like all the benefits and a union and a pension, and, yeah. and suddenly, it, you know, when you only teach, I mean, you're only working half the year. You only teach two days a week. It's it's it's, it's stupid. Mm-hmm. So there was just no way I was turning that down. No way. So yeah, I jumped on that, and then it's like, all right, suddenly I've got a budget. And I took over the program with Courtney. Well, all right, I'm going to buy me, a, I should say, buy the program. A giant, <laughs> you know, we need a giant Allen and Heath board, right? We need this, we need that. And so now it's this, it's this uh, wonderful um, uh, place to play, you know, and it's now I, I'm not, I'm not facilitating the needs of, of musicians and bands in Thunder Bay. It's the students who come through the program now. And it's like, all right, a lot of them are musicians and, a lot of them are poor and they can't bring their stuff. So, all right, let's buy a Marshall stack. Let's buy a drum kit. Let's buy guitars. Let's have all this stuff so that when students come here, they can record. We're a film production program, but, you know, we've got all the Pro Tools and Logic stuff and everything you'd ever want. And we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I just let the game figure it out, you know, just play and learn and, you know, just finish building another sound booth. So it's, it's great to to do all of that. So, yeah, a total kid in a candy store. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it kind of kind of switched over there. Yeah. Um. Do you, I mean, your what you've learned over your whole life kind of helps with this too, right? Because you, oh, sure. you know, you find out new and exciting ways to 
stretch a dollar, as well as you can maybe use your brain or what your logic is to purchase what you need to purchase, because that that's important. Because there's a lot of people that I've worked with in the university system that are like, they don't really purchase things wisely. And I work for a town, you know, where they do the same thing, where it's like, let's buy a $40,000 projector, you know? Yeah, they don't understand. I think what 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 you're getting at here is the do-it-yourself ethic, the DIY ethic. Um, and, and being from Thunder Bay, where we don't have a lot of resources, and you have to be inventive and creative to, to get what you need. But yeah, having the whole the whole uh, punk rock do it yourself ethic. Well, we don't need to have this, this, or this. We can make do with these things. All right, you don't need a forty thousand dollar projector. What do you know? The one that's six thousand dollars or less or whatever mm-hmm. isn't as good, but it's pretty close. If it breaks, we'll just buy another one. You know, we're saving so much money. That whole approach to things, you know, and again with the with the music business and especially with the film business. It's all about rolling with the punches. It's all about problem solving. Things break, you got to fix it, or things change, you got to adapt and move on, and yeah. and that sort of thing. So certainly, everything from the days of being on the road to 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 you know screwing around with recording to the record label and everything, it's all been a wonderful foundation for for what I do now. Uh, you know, and you. To, Unbeknownst to myself, you know, you you developed negotiating skills and people skills, or what they call soft skills these mm-hmm. days. I mean, all the work you've done with uh, with you know with your traveling studio back then, dealing with all those different people's wants and needs in different places with different attitudes. You know, you don't know it, but you're constantly learning. Oh yeah, and then you apply that. You you sit down with a client or whoever now, and you get that quick read on what type of person they might be. And, you know, you're, you're better adapted to, to figure out what, what they're actually asking for and all kinds of things. It's, it's, it's hard to put your finger on it, but it's definitely there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so do you think now with, with modern, like technology, what's available to the average person, not just with music recording, but with film recording where people can take an iPhone and put a nice lens on it and, and make a movie like how awesome would that be when it, like 25 years ago? Like, <laughs> well, it would have been great, but it, you know, like anything, it's only great for the people that are going to utilize it appropriately. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, anybody with a laptop now can, you know, and, and a couple of good SM 58s or whatever, you know, and a little, uh, you know, anybody can do it, but not everybody is. And just because it's available doesn't mean people are do it. And, and then like anything, the cream rises to the top. Mm-hmm. Cause anyone can make a movie. Doesn't mean everybody should. Yeah. You know, we learn that all the time. So you get this big glut of uh, of uh, mediocrity. And it's not just so much that. I mean, with YouTube, there's all these avenues and venues to 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 showcase yourself and to uh, and to do that. But again, you know, like it to a certain degree, it hasn't changed. It's changed everything. And at the same time, it hasn't changed anything. If you don't have the stick to if you don't have, if you're not a meticulous person, if you're not a hard worker, all those things, yes, yeah, you know, having all the technology in the world is not helping you one bit. Yeah. The, well, I mean, we're in a world now where technology makes things complacent. So therefore, if things are easy to achieve based on technology, you're not really kind of looking to break boundaries. 
So, and, and the B part of that is that there's, everybody is making something and the content being uploaded to YouTube is something like three times the per time, actual time. So when somebody uploads a video, there's actually three times the amount of like something like for every minute of actual time, there's like three or four minutes of content being uploaded to YouTube. That's a bad thing when you got to try and sift through all like the mess Mm -hmm. and somebody is going to invent like a taste app where it's like, (laughs) let's just filter all the crap out and just bring all the good stuff in. And that's artificial intelligence because you need to sort of look at something, analyze it and go, oh, this is good. I like this. And so will a thousand other people. Right now, there's some guy farting on on an iPhone and he's going to upload it to YouTube. Like, that's not exciting. (laughs) And no one's ever going to watch it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then again, you know, someone does something really interesting, really creative, and then it goes the term for viral, right? And then Mm -hmm. everyone gets gets to see it and that person gets their 15 minutes of fame. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll, we'll see where it goes. I mean, it has been around for a long time um, to some extent. But, you know, people still go to the movies and um you know this giant explosion of independent music and all that i I don't know what the stat is but it was it's something to the effect of you know 99 percent of all music sold is still 10 or 15 artists yeah everyone else all those millions of bands on spotify that you that you have to dig up or whatever they're all fighting for that last one percent you know and so that hasn't really hasn't really changed to a certain extent. You can still do it, but that doesn't mean um, your art is getting any more exposed uh, than you ever had a chance to before. So I guess the point is, uh, yeah, we all have the ability to do all of the things that we wished we could, uh, we could, we could do. We, we now have the ability to, to feel like we're movie stars and rock stars and this kind of thing. But that, what doesn't come along with that is is the the fame and fortune as it were because yeah. to get to that level it's got to have either uh, a degree of quality that is palpable or you've got to have a certain degree of representation right? you yeah. got to be part of that big machine you don't necessarily have to be good but if you're part of that big machine right uh then yeah you're going to get you're going to get pushed into that 10, 15 artists that that do all the selling. Yeah, it's just like, I mean, the film industry versus the music industry is the same thing. I mean, the music industry was like a design by committee where you have, here's your publicity, here's your publicity person, here is your um, artist uh, representation, here is your stylist, here's all these things, and all these people are going to pool together the best stuff they know and make you into the rock star that you should be. Well, that that system's broken like now, although there's nothing really wrong with that system because it kind of worked. I mean, you had stars like Axl Rose. I mean, mm-hmm. Axl Rose could not today be Axl Rose unless he had a team of people uh, or, you know what I mean, to perpetuate the myth that he was. So, and I, but I don't really know what my point is, but I, I, I think that there was a, a pros and cons to the old guard and... The pros were, well, if a bunch of people wanted to work with you as you as a team, it's a lot easier than one guy um, like you or me trying to become or trying to make success in what was that, that was the game to play. Yeah. So, well, you could manufacture it back then for sure. You could manufacture it and then, and then, and then sell it to people and they would, they would buy it or they wouldn't. Sometimes it didn't work. 
but mm -hmm. a lot of the time they did. But the point was, I think that the the powers that be had control. Mm -hmm. They had control of the situation. Yeah, you know, if Axel Rose starts not delivering, they just turn off the switch, and he's he's just a chump. Yeah. That's it. It's over, <laughs> right? Um, so my, you know, uh, it is it is a bit interesting to see some of these YouTube stars that that don't have bosses, they don't have record labels, they don't have management or representation. You know, who can make a living off it? Yeah or barely make a living off of it anyway. I mean, and it's got to end at some point. I mean, you can only, I, I don't know. I, can you, can you make a hundred grand a year doing makeup tips on, on YouTube and sustain that for your, the rest of your life yeah. or because it's everything changes. Uh, you know, you got a four year lifespan before either YouTube, it's become something else where you can't do it anymore mm -hmm. or, or people get fed up with it or someone, takes what you're doing and does it better mm -hmm. popularity is a there's always a reaction against what is popular and what becomes popular and you or i don't determine that it's millions of people that determine popularity and who's going to be popular based on what everybody wants like what everybody's thinking and and you can't i've had this conversation before with people but you can't engineer that you you either have it or you don't so there's hope for anybody in their basement to make a record. That's great. But the problem is, is that everybody's got a laptop in their basement and they're all trying to make a record. And yeah. there's oh, so yeah. much noise to filter through. That's hence the app. We need the app that says, um, uh, okay, uh, what do you got? In, what, what chords are you playing? Oh, okay. That's not working. <laughs> and certainly with music or, or popular music, certainly uh, rock music or rock type music, you've got you've got touring and you've got the live performances that will, that will separate, uh, you know, the pedestrians from the professionals or the people who are really good. Yeah. You know, if you put on a good live show, uh, people are going to buy your records and that's, that's not an easy thing for, for, for basement dwellers mm -hmm. to be able to pull off. But I tell you just the other day, speaking of that, uh, I guess that's when you, you know, there's supposed to be certain indicators of when you're, you have to come to terms with your being old and one of my students was like, uh, said a thing to me on Facebook. Oh, check it out! The they've just leaked the the itinerary of the or the uh, the the scheduling for uh, uh, the the Vans Warped Tour, mm. and there was something like sixty bands listed, and and I had I had heard of eight of them. Yeah, that was it. I didn't know who any of these yeah. guys are. Yeah, well, well, I had Kevin Lyman on the show last year, and you know, I'm sure he doesn't know all these bands, you know, but the train gotta keep a rolling, you know yeah. what I mean? And the demographic is how many 50 year old dudes, like 47 this year. I don't, I don't know where you're going this year, but uh, want to sit in a sweaty parking lot looking at punk bands. And yeah. we're not that demographic anymore. Like we're no, not, no. you know, no. we'd be constantly looking for air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. And it was years ago. Like you couldn't drag me. You couldn't drag me to the, to the club after being in so many, for so many years, you know, that, that, that stale beer smell and everything, you know? Yeah. Okay. It was great when I, when I was, when I was younger, but yeah, you, you, you couldn't drag me to a, a live show, at least not, you know, if it's a, if it's a, I went to see uh, uh queen in Winnipeg, cause I wanted to see Brian May and yeah. you know, the red special and that. And I'd grown up, grown up with their campy as it is. I'd grown up with their music and that was something else, but it was, I was the youngest guy there. Apparently. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, you can't get me to go to the club anymore. I think I went with Lee. Lee are known to see Death Angel because he was a big fan. And even then, I was like, "Oh, get me the hell out of here!" I just can't do this anymore. 
I'm with you. Um, I have a small version of PTSD when it comes to going to smaller clubs. I'm always looking for the exit. I don't like people around me. Um, and this is years of touring in with bands where you could actually go to a room and you didn't have to be around with a bunch of people. And it's a weird thing. My wife looks at me like, are you okay? And it's not a fear of crowds. I don't have a fear of crowds. Like I could walk around in crowds and not be afraid. It's when I'm in a club and I know that it's like, okay, all these people are here and I can't get away from them. So <laughs> I don't know how to get out of that because I want to go see more shows now. Like my kids, like your kids are you still young, but my kids are getting to the part where they can actually take care of themselves. So it's like, man, let's go out. We should go out more, you know, and do more stuff, you know, and that's sort of the later part. You know, we're, we're getting older now. I've been, yeah, I think you met my wife, Spring, uh, when you yeah, oh, yeah. came down to Toronto for like a couple of days or something. This is a long time ago now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, we're getting to the age now where we can go out and my son can watch and babysit. He's old enough, you know, and I want to go out. Like, I want to experience things like, and I want to feel young again, you know, like the time between the age of 35 and 45 has been like, oh, I got to stay home and I got to take care of stuff, you know, I got to take care of me and my family and stuff. But I don't know. I don't know. What, are your, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, well it's the, the, I was born in 1968, so I'm going to be. I'm turning 49 in a couple of months. I'll be hitting the big 50 coming up, uh, and yeah. So uh, being Generation X, that's us. Um, or uh, if you were born between 65 and 80, whatever, you're Generation X. So uh, you would be in there, yeah. right? For sure. And then after a certain time, it's the Millennial Generation, as they call it, and all of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're, it's just it's with every single. It's just the whole part of being uh, of getting of getting older. Um, and you know, I remember when I was a kid, or even now, you look at the baby boomers and you look at these 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 old people. Like my story, I was in Winnipeg, staying at a nice hotel, and I was like, "All right, it's time to go to the show. I'm gonna see. I'm gonna see Queen. It's, they got that other singer guy, whatever." And uh, the the van pulled up from the hotel, the little van that was taking everyone downtown. I got in the van, and it was these like super old dudes, eh? Mm-hmm. And, and a couple old women, like with curly gray hair and the walkers, literally. And I'm like, oh wow, okay, well, you know, where are you guys going? Oh, we're gonna go see Queen. I'm like, Jesus, really? <laughs> you know, they were like super old. And then I realized, yeah, well, all those guys are are pushing seventy. Yeah. And it's hard to think. This is the thing it's hard for me to think of those old ladies. And then when I got to the show, there was actually lots of people uh, a lot younger than me there. And there was a lot of headbanger guys who really wanted to see uh, Brian May, but it was hard to look around and see these super, super old people and think, okay, they were probably just partying and just killing it back in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Hard to look at an old, respectable woman and think, wow, she was probably just nuts. <laughs> In the sixties, right? Yeah. So we were nuts in the in the, uh, or they would actually have been nuts in the seventies, which was probably even more uh, crazy um, than we were even were in the in the nineties. You think about the, the amount of drugs and and drinking, oh, yeah. partying and stuff that happened early. That's probably nothing to what they were doing in the seventies. So it's hard to look at these old people and think, "Wow, you used to do that stuff. Now you're all respectable and stuff." So. We're now at that age in the in their late forties where you know, and kids and everything. It's like you're just starting 
to stop swearing so much and you're just starting and you hung on to it for a while and you're just starting to to realize all right uh maturity comes late sometimes but yeah you're getting into that zone where you're not going to recognize that you used to be this person yeah that did all that kind of stuff yeah when i first started working Sorry. My point is that just everyone does it. It's just yeah. part of life. That's it. When I first started working at York University, I was 35. When That's I pretty- left, I was 45. Yeah. There's a huge difference in age gap between a 35 and a 25-year-old than a 45, because they all just keep getting younger, and you're getting yeah, older. Yeah. And so you're no longer at 35 going to the, bob, the pub with them. Uh, right. I'm sorry, after 35, 36, 30, every year it goes by and you start disassociating yourself more and more because it's just weird. There's just weirdness where, like, why can I relate to a, you know, and my, my, the co, one of my coworkers going, they're not your friends. They're not going to be your friends anymore. And I'm like, but I, I, you know, I miss the days when I could go hang out with them. And now I'm older and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily enjoy hanging out with these people anymore. He goes, that's part of life. That's what happens. And he's older than me. You know, he was older than me at the time. So, so, yeah, I had a very much parallel experience. You know, when I first started teaching in the colleges, yeah, between somewhere, yeah, 32, 33, 34. And so, yeah, the students are coming in and they're, you know, anywhere from 18 to 24. So we're very close. We like all the same kind of music. And yeah, we hung out all the time, made good friends and everything. But then, yeah, slowly but surely, you, you, you move away from that and move away from that. Uh, and I think that's yeah, healthy, yeah. though. That's a healthy. Yeah, for sure it is. Yeah. You know, because you, we all got to grow that's up. Dangerous. In a lot of ways, yeah. less dangerous in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, you're just you're just assessing things. I mean, there's that perpetual. You know, there we all know that one person who's like gonna be mid forties who acts like an eighteen year old because and hang out and dyes their hair and you know tries to look young and stay young. And you look as you get older, you're like, you know what? You should just just embrace the age. Like, there's no fear of being older. I mean, you know, I, I give my parents props a lot, but they have parties. They have friends over. In fact, they're more sociable than I am. And that's generational. I mean, because of being coming, move, moving over from England and having friends that who are, you, you, you develop this bond. And, and that's a time of, you know, the 60s and 70s, like you were saying before, that's a time when people sort of got together and hung out, you know, because there was nothing else you had each other and that's it. Now we have everything. We have big widescreen TVs and we have Oh, everyone's looking at their cell phones. Internet and cell phones and and we're turning into a bunch of um people who are inherently selfish and we don't want to you know. And what's that going to do in 100 years? What's going to happen when we're all like too busy with our extended necks looking at our cell phones and people don't know how to talk to each other. I mean, we're becoming idiocracy all over again. I don't know if you've seen that Mike Judge movie, but that's what we're turning into. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How do we change it? We don't. <laughs> that's, right. that's it. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, no, uh, I heard a great thing on the radio the other day and it really opened my eyes. This woman was saying, who was a, very much an environmentalist activist, she was basically saying, yeah, you know what? If you if you, if you don't want to do the recycling, fine. If you don't want to, you know, get your water, um, you know, if you, you can you can go ahead and buy those plastic bottles because you know what you should really be doing because we've done all this work, and you know, and then Trump got in and he's going to undo all of this stuff instead of recycling, instead of not buying the plastic bottles. Go ahead and do that. Take all the energy that you would have spent doing those things. 
and put it into politics and become an activist mm. and get other people to uh you know work work to open other people's eyes to the greater thing because that's collectively if we all had been doing that instead maybe we could have prevented uh things from actually getting worse yeah quite uh, down on it and, and that was interesting yeah was in so yeah you know uh uh, we gotta, we gotta fight. I mean, again, I, I don't like using the, the, the generational terms, but you know, uh, our particular generation, our age group, as it were, have been under the thumb of the baby boomers for so long. I mean, we grew up with every second movie was named after some kind of uh, song from the '60s that they loved. You know, My yeah. Girl, and remember that is just yeah. And we've had to l deal with them, you know, and they're giving us the final fu with Donald Trump or whatever. Uh, but in a couple of years, uh, yeah, we take over. That's it. And then we're the man and the millennials are sort of looking to us. Um, and so while with grunge and all these other things and punk rock and all the stuff from the, the early nineties that, that, that radicalized a lot of us artistically and philosophically and politically, mm -hmm. we, we're going to have to start spending that capital now for the good, uh, and, uh, make, make good on the promise to have things be be better. And I always compared like my, my, my mentor, Dennis, he's, he's a former hippie and he's very much the baby boomer. And I always say, you know, you guys had Woodstock. We had live aid, you know, you yeah. guys were getting high and getting naked or whatever. And we were like trying to feed people. And I think that's the difference. And so we need to, uh, we need to be those people as we get older and start deciding uh, as we get older, now we're we're going to be parents, and we're going to be running the schools and 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 running the show. Yeah. We've got to not do what they did, which was uh, you know they were all peace and love and and understanding, and then they all ended up being insurance salesmen and hedge fund managers and screwed over the planet. Yeah, we have to be uh, true yeah. to our to our. Uh, original sensibilities our knee-jerk reaction to them we can't sell out like they did that's uh that's powerful i mean because no one's framed it that way you know so in my opinion it needs to be framed that way we need to take control and i mean you're right you know using you know because there's there wasn't a lot of um we were all kind of thinking the same you know what i mean there wasn't a lot of judgmental weirdness when it came to like um yeah, I don't know. I don't like. I'm, I'm getting confused on what I'm trying to say because you kind of blew me away there. <laughs> well, we weren't. Uh, it was just natural that we didn't discriminate. Yeah, uh, it was just natural. Like I didn't care if you were you're gay. I didn't care if you're black, white, or brown. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. And when yeah. we were almost the first generation, where suddenly it was just, it wasn't that it. Oh, it's okay yeah. that you're you're homosexual. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care one way or the other. It's none of my freaking business. You be whatever you want. Yeah. Well, they've, uh, they've ramped we, that up they, now. Yeah, we need to take that and yeah. we need to institutionalize that. Well, I think what you're, I think it's actually happening because my kids are in public school. Your kids are in public school. There is such a, um, such a, a movement to anti-bullying, um, acceptance, um, and evil, even musical preference. Like there's no... I mean, my son likes hip hop. He likes Green Day. He doesn't have a. He's, remember, we had the Metlers and we had the Punkers and we had the. You know, there was that sort of segregated version of the musical. Kids don't have 
a genre. They just like everything. And that's all based on what's happening in the public school system because it's, you know, you'll see it, man. It's, it's already happening. I think it's already happening now. Like, cause we're the ones who are the teachers there now, you know what I mean? So I think there's hope. I mean, I really do. I think there's hope. Well, I think it's, it's cool to like lots of different stuff. And also what you were saying before, I mean, it, it, it was, it's harder, I think, to fall into a niche just because uh, you're so much, uh, you're exposed to so much more different stuff. Yeah. For me growing up, uh, being from Thunder Bay, uh, we didn't even get good periodicals like, you know, Max Rock and Roll or Flipside coming in too often. So it was, it was quite often much music was the centerpiece of how we discovered new music. And much music would have uh, their, their late night show. I think, what was it called? Where they showed the freaky videos from England. And it's like, I discovered the yeah. fall. Yeah and the smiths and i discovered all this stuff because there was that one show that came on friday nights or whatever yeah that was allowed to show the different stuff that wasn't in their main rotation mm-hmm. and they had their pepsi power hour and all that so we found music from there but it was still quite uh segmented and, mm-hmm. and now with spotify and with youtube and and all these other places oh or or you've got uh you know your satellite radio where there's just it's it's almost impossible to not get exposed to all kinds of different stuff that you might like. And I remember you were always very good because you were, you were, you were trying to uh, impress upon uh, the guys in head cramps. Like you guys got to check it. And you would say, this is babe, the blue ox. (laughs) Check this out. out." And we'd listen to us like, yeah, that's pretty rad. And, and then you were saying, cause we all hated country music cause you're supposed to hate country music, but you were like, you know, Johnny cash has got some rad stuff. And like, check this guy out telling us to listen, listen to all this different stuff. Yeah. And, and we did, we, we, and we were able to branch out from there, mm-hmm. but it was, it had to be brought to our attention. Yeah. And I don't think it's got to get brought to anybody's attention now. It's just there. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, if you're, if your artistic tastes are less likely to be segregated, I think you're hopefully uh, going to be, if you're open-minded about your artistic uh, taste you're more likely to be open-minded about other things as well that yeah. different people like different things in different places who are you to judge you know um you i think it's pretty rare to find someone getting beat up because they look like a punk because the metal guys beat up the punk guys which used to happen yeah which used to happen like it was a gang that would never happen now no because no. i think frank lafredo once said something very profound he said do you remember the days where you could tell what kind of music a person liked based on how they dressed. And now how they dressed is no indication really of what kind of music they, they might like any, any number of things, Mm -hmm. but there was, it was very much a uniform that went with it. So things are probably better now as a result of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, you know, I, I'm, I want to leave this off on a, on a hopeful note, you know, and I, I, I truly think that the world is kind of like we're in a weird, dark moment right now. What's happening south of the border? And I, I don't even like using that name because one day we won't have to remember that name. That name's just going to go away. Um, <laughs> like we I've, I've had this conversation with people before, like how weird would this world be if we didn't know who Hitler was? Yeah. How how would it be different? Would it be better? Would it be, you know, would you have context about what evil is? Um, you know what I mean? All these crazy things. And, you know, and I, I don't want even to even give that person due of a, of a name. And then people are like that. And it just drives me so crazy on how many things that's happening down there. And it makes me not want to ever go there ever again. And, mm-hmm. 
But well, you just have to, you have to remind yourself that it was it's the minority of the minority. It was a it was a, a, a fluke thing in a number of ways, and yeah, more and more every day it's looking quite nefarious that there might have been some monkey business going on. Too. Oh yeah, might explain a lot of stuff. So yeah, yeah. But I mean, but, to leave it on a hopeful note, I I truly think that uh, the world is the universe is an interesting beast. You know what I mean? We run, we bump into people. People are always um there and you've always been that person who's always been very supportive and i would like to think that the support was reciprocated and and we had this little symbiotic world where we we kind of like fed off each other you know like i ate food because you would put bands in my you know in my knowledge and and i paid my mortgage half the time from recording bands because people like you you know and i have to give you credit for that because that's how this world is networked. You know, we're all networked together and, you know, and you've been a, you've been a very, very um, solid person in my early parts of my career. And I thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. Well, I just remember it as being a, a really good time. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. And you, you, you made a lot of people happy and that's the best thing about uh, music and stuff like that is it's an opportunity to, to make people happy. I mean, that's what we do as, as filmmakers, as musicians, as recording engineers, as whatever, at the end of the day, you're producing something that makes somebody happy. Mm. And that's the meaning of life right there. That's awesome. Thanks, man. All right. Good talking to you. That was Eric Weller. Oh, my throat is effed. <clears throat> I um, not only have a cold, but I went and played a show in Barrie, Ontario a couple of nights ago. Uh, kind of actually... Uh, pimped out. I got myself a hotel room up in Barrie. Barrie. Then I woke up and I came and did some recording all day yesterday. So I, I really have been burning the candle at both ends for the past two weeks. And this episode is actually coming out late. Because, well, it's coming out on Monday, but it's coming out like later in the morning. Rather, it usually comes out like three in the morning, which is like midnight. Uh, West Coast time. Uh, uh, my throat! My throat's crowd. So, uh, that was Eric Weller. And he was just kind of a knowledgeable guy and just an entrepreneur and I really gravitate to people like that I really respect people that kind of go out and do their own thing and they don't they don't really fit a mold and those people are the people we need more of everybody we need more mold breakers so uh, yeah every week I do a podcast and it's been fun it's super fun still fun uh, it's just very taxing and tiring and I'm going to try and I will obviously be trying to keep them out every week, but it's just been such a busy time of the year. Um, I'm just I'm just really busy, and I love doing it. So this is the most... Actually, this is probably the most enjoyable thing that, you know, doing rather nothing. If I'm doing nothing, I'll be doing this podcast. <laughs> Does that make sense? I think so. I'm rambling. This episode's gone on too long. I don't know who's coming up next week because I still have to interview him. Uh, that's how behind the times I am. Uh, yeah, you know about all the stuff, you know, you know about going to Ride to Conquer Cancer, you know about going to Appalog.ca and clicking on the banner, you know about going shopping on Amazon, if you're from Canada, go to Appalog.ca slash Amazon, and you also know to go to Patreon.com slash Appalog to pledge the show on a monthly basis, you know about all those things, you also know about telling a friend, go do that, please, help me out by letting a friend know that this is the best podcast on the, on the planet. Uh, maybe even the universe. You don't know. You don't know. You know why? Because you don't tell anybody. No, I do good. This is good. Woo! I'm going to put a secret word in here. Secret word is uh, San Pellegrino. Because I just had one. 
they're delicious. So if you give me the San Pellegrino, I'll send you a download code to get the uh, Four Squares discography. It's, um, it's a bunch of songs. Just your reward for hanging on for an extra 75 minutes to, you know, secret word, San Pellegrino, one word. Text it or email me or send me the thing. Okay, I'll see you next week, everybody. Bye.